Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. Our first lesson today comes from the book of Exodus, beginning in the first verse of chapter 17. Listen now to the Word of God. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John in the fourth, in the fourth chapter. Let us listen that we may hear what God is saying to us. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you to give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from the water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or keep coming here 
to draw water. The word of the Lord. You recognize this? This is a faucet. It's an old faucet. It's a faucet that's not connected to anything. But you know what it's for, right? It's a faucet. And if it were connected to a source of water, and if it did have knobs on it, then we could turn it on and water could come. It provides a resource that we have. In our day and time, we think of faucets much as wells were in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, you had to go to the well. The faucet is going to be connected ultimately to a well or to a water source, but you had to go to the well and draw the water out there with a bucket. Now we simply use the knobs to turn them on. We use that as, as a way to think about how we have life, how we find life. Water flows, and it gives us things that our body craves. We must have water. We must have ways of hydrating ourselves, of being alive. Most of the body weight is water. Most of the things we consume, the beverages we use, are composed of significant portions of water. It is life-giving. The story of Jesus at the well with the Samaritan woman is a powerful one about the life of faith and about finding ways to think about the life-giving power of water. Not simply the physical water, but the water of faith, the water of love, the water of connection that we share through God, that God has given us in this world. The well where Jesus met her is a place of common heritage for Jews and for Samaritans. If you go way back in history, it was a place where Jacob, the patriarch, one of the, the founders of the family of faith, the children of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob was the one who fled from his brother after deceiving him, and, and he was making peace with him, and it was at that well that he made camp. It was a place that is known and, and marked, and even to this day has a, a, it's a place that people attend and go to. The divisions, though, of what happened to the family, the children, of Jacob and the children of the tribes of Israel is a difficult one because after Jacob there was a time in which the children went to Egypt and they were held ultimately in captivity and then they led and left through Moses' leadership and came back to the land. They were governed by judges and then ultimately they demanded a king and King David rose to power. But after King David's rule, the kingdom's the kingdom fell apart. There were two kingdoms that split apart, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And much of what happened in this story represents the division of that family, that the way those kingdoms fell apart. The northern kingdom was conquered by people called the Assyrians 
in the 720s BC. The southern kingdom remained independent for another 120 years, but ultimately they were conquered by the Babylonians. The Assyrians in the north, they came in, they moved in, they, they set up their government and they took over things as they were and began to make their ways and practices known. The Hebrew rites that were practiced by the northern kingdom became uh, watered down and they were not the same as the southern kingdoms. They, and one of the major things that happened was the site of ritual sacrifice became Mount Gerizim as opposed to Jerusalem, a small, something that was very major for them. The Babylonians in the south, when they took over, took a different tack to controlling the area. They literally took up the Jewish people and they moved them hundreds of miles to Babylon and there they remained for 70 years or so. They remained part of an exile people. And it was in Babylon that the Jews from Jerusalem wrote and lamented returning to their native land. As King David's Psalm said, how do you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And that is a reference to that, that relocation, that, that challenge that, that was there. In that place, they, those, the, the Jews in Babylon came to understand that the Messiah would come and deliver them and return them home and return their kingdom to glory. Eventually, the, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, and the Persian king, Cyrus the Great, permitted the Jews to relocate in Jerusalem, and they established their country there and their rule there. So even though the Jews and the Samaritans had a lot in common prior to the division of the kingdom, the differences about what had happened through the political, the social, and the religious aspects of life were very, very significant issues. They were points of great distress and, and separation, as the Gospel reading says, Samaritans and Jews did not talk together, much less did not men and women speak in public together. So there were pieces of division that were there. Now when the Romans conquered the area, shortly before Jesus' life, they put them together, and they simply referred to that as the kingdom of Judea and Samaria. And in fact, to that day, the region of Judea and Samaria is a common way in which the nation of Israel is often referred to. This division had very serious implications because the Jews looked down on the Samaritans for not following the ritual as they understood it, and the Samaritans looked down on the Jews for their emphasis on that. So the worlds clash. What happens here is not simply a man and a woman sitting by a, a well needing water. What happens here is hundreds of history, hundreds of years of history coming together in confrontation. 
But the story of John 4 opens up new ways of thinking about that, not only for them, but for us as well. Because in this encounter, we see a way of thinking of how life might be different. Jesus sets up a trajectory so that exclusion can be overcome and community can be built. In this Lenten season, as we prepare to come and celebrate the birth, of, I mean, the rebirth of life, the, the, the rising again of, from the dead of Jesus and Easter, the resurrection, as we celebrate that, we need to be thinking about what the living water is like. For we all need this living water. We all need to find our wells. We all need to find our faucets that will turn on this living water for us and share it with us. Think about this. You are traveling in an alien land, a land where people do not welcome you readily, and you are thirsty and you need to stop. That is where Jesus and his disciples were. So he stopped at this well where they knew there was water. The disciples went on to find food. Jesus admits that he is in need. He asked a foreign woman to provide him for some, something. She did not have to respond as she did, but she chose to, and she engaged him in conversation. And from that conversation, not only is there conversation of the water of life, but there is the water that gives life of living water. As they talk, Jesus shares with her the divisions that have separated us and our peoples. Those divisions will, will go away. The time is coming, and in fact has come, when, you're, when where you're called or what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. That is the, the rendering of the text from the message. If you are, it's not, it's who you are, and the way you live that count before God, Jesus said. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before God in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. God is spirit. Those who worship God must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. It's not where you worship, it is how your being comes to worship that is the important thing that Jesus lifts up. These divisions that we've had for the centuries, these divisions are not the things that matter now. What matters now is how we find ways to build inclusion and overcome our exclusion that has been there. That's easy for us to say. And, and as descendants of people, in a, in a figurative sense, as descendants of people who follow Jesus, we can say, win, we got it, we got it. But that is not what Jesus is about completely. Jesus is about offering living water. Draw this water out of the well. Turn on the faucet 
so that the living water comes and we find ways to overcome the divisions that have been there and to build a community of love and service together. To do that, Jesus doesn't just reiterate good words. Good words are important and they're useful. But he engages the woman. He asks her to go and bring her family to him, her husband. But she says, I don't have a husband. She talks about, she acknowledges that she comes from a, a broken family. And Jesus shares more with her. He says, that doesn't matter now. Your brokenness doesn't matter. Your condition doesn't matter. Turn your heart over Allow your spirit to be made full and you are part of this, part of the ones who receive the living water. Instead of condemning her as others might have done, Jesus offers the woman this living water. He turns on the faucet, as it were. So what does that mean for us today? How do we be a disciple of Jesus? Many years ago, I was participating in a church workshop, and the leader was making the point that part of our Christian Presbyterian tradition is grounded in some pretty revolutionary ideas. Part of our Protestant heritage is that people need to know how to read so we can read the Scripture, and in the Scripture, we can interact and engage with Jesus and with God. That is something that is part of who we are. Presbyterian missionaries and, and Protestant missionaries and, and Catholic missionaries, too, throughout history, one of the things they do when they go to, into a new community is to establish schools so people can learn to read. It is basic to our understanding of how we respond to God's call. In our nation, our Presbyterian heritage has been part of a bulwark for freedom. During the re uh, revolutionary period in, around Charlotte, North Carolina, that region became known as the hornet's nest of rebellion because there were so many Presbyterian clergy and churches, and they were opposed to, in many ways, the British rule of the area. When Horace Walpole, the Prime Minister of Great Britain in 1776, learned of the Declaration of Independence, he made the, supposedly made the quip, Cousin America has run off with the Presbyterian parson, meaning John Witherspoon, who was an educator, president of the College of New Jersey, and also a Presbyterian pastor. These things are part of our Presbyterian DNA that support and, and lift up and empower people. It is important for us to do that. The leader of the workshop went on to talk a bit about the Civil War and how these ideas were involved in the Presbyterian response to that. And in my Southern heritage and my smart-alecky way that I was at the time, I made some quip about the Civil War being the war of northern aggression. But no sooner had I said that than I realized that not everybody sees it that way. 
And in fact, that war was a war for human liberation. Take out the culture and the heritage stuff. The fact was that American society in the 1860s was built largely on coerced labor, north and south. There were ways in which that impact was significant. And we must find ways to confront and, and, and live into the reality that regardless of what our ancestors did on any side of the issue, we all live with that legacy. I happen to have Confederate ancestors, yet I also know that those who have ancestors on other ways, on other sides of that issue, also are struck with the legacy that it leaves. We must find ways to move forward. It is an uncomfortable reality, for sure, but we live with it still. Walk around uptown Columbus and look at the historical markers. Half a block down First Avenue, there's a marker for, Tom, for Thomas Brewer, a physician who uh, worked for the right to vote and who met a violent death in the 1950s. Walk around this area and see that we are living still with this legacy, with this reality, with this power. The challenge is, what do we do about it? Even when we did not do anything to create those terms, what do we do about it? We have to deal with those results. And we must acknowledge it. I think if we look to Jesus in this encounter with the woman at the well, we might find some way forward. Jesus did not condemn. He reached out and he shared living water with her. He offered her a way of thinking in a new way about her life. And because of that, she brought those around her and they saw that as well. They saw that as a different way of being. As Jesus was with the woman at that historic place of Jacob's well, he acknowledged the difficulty in his history, in their history together, in the pain of their encounter. Yet Jesus did not run from that challenge. He confronted it and acknowledged it. Building community sounds like it's such a wonderful thing, but it cannot happen unless we are able to allow ourselves to build a solid foundation. And that means we confront those difficult times in our lives. As disciples of Jesus, we have to join each other in that effort. We have to be part of a community that is willing to engage in this. This past week, there was a, a link or an article that popped up on my social media feeds, and it may have been just because I was a pastor, because it was written by a pastor, but it struck me because people that I know who are very conservative and people I know who are very liberal were posting the same thing. That's an interesting di dichotomy. The article was titled, Sorry, but if you're a Christian, you need to go to church regularly. 
I'll be happy to provide the link if you want it. It's a fascinating concept. He wasn't making the case that non-Christians come to church. He was just saying, if you are a Christian, then church is a place where you're going to grow, where you're going to find things. And he talked about it this way. He said, Christianity is a team sport. He gave the example. You can go into your backyard and pitch and practice over and over again. And you can throw really good fastballs and curveballs. But unless you're on a team, you're never going to have a chance to throw a pitch in a game situation. You need to be part of a team for that. Another point he made was, it's not all about you. Yeah, there's some things that are about you, but it's not all about you. He wrote, your fellow parishioners, including your pastor, <clears throat> well, okay, will make you mad, hurt your feelings, and get on your nerves. Maybe so. But then he said, your fellow Christians will reveal aspects of the Lord you've never seen. And finally, he concludes, to the extent that you honor the church, you honor Christ. You'll get a few laughs, he wrote. You'll sing, you'll pray, you'll snore, you'll grow fidgety. But as much as anything, you'll experience joy and mirth. Each church is a microcosm of, of the human comedy. When you're not cussing about it, the sheer madness of it just leaves you clutching your ribcage, shaking with laughter, tears of gratitude streaming down your cheeks. To me, it sounds like this writer is saying with different words that the living water that Jesus offered to the woman in Samaria is available to us today. It may come through some rusty pipes, it may be discolored at times, but there is a way in which we can share together the power and the life-giving spirit of God's water to us. May that be so. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.